Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. What you are about to hear is the second of four speakers who appeared at the Casebook Classic Crime Symposium at the Chamberlain Hotel in London on Saturday, December 5th, 2015. This event was organized by Frog Moody and Time Zone Publishing's Casebook Classic Crime in conjunction with the Whitechapel Society with Philip Hutchison as the MC. All four talks will be presented in their entirety and uncut, and the accompanying slide presentations will be made available for download on the individual presentation's podcast page at casebook.org. Get ready for speaker number two, Trevor Bond and a Terrible Tale from 1888. So uh, Trevor Bond is, is the next speaker today with his presentation, The Terrible Tale of 1888. Uh, apparently he's, he's heard about some guy called Jack the Ripper who wants to tell you what he's found out about him. Um, he's, he's born in South London to an East End family. Uh, he's a writer and researcher who's previously spoken at the 2010, 2012, and 2014 Jack the Ripper conferences. Uh, you notice that's once every every two years, so uh, him speaking at all is a bit of an anomaly today. Uh, basically what happens is within those two years, Trevor says nothing. He just sits on the floor, he makes sort of groaning, keening noises, and sometimes communicates with people by interpretive dance. Um, he also writes for Casebook Examiner and Ripperologist magazines, He's a long-term member of the Whitechapel Society 1888 and is currently engaged in co-authoring the A to Z of Victorian Crime to be published by Amberley Press in 2016 as well as a very special project with Mango Books about the history of mangoes. Uh, <laughs> in real life, he, he lives with his wife and stepdaughter um, in West Wales. That's the Snicky there. Nicky's come along today, not so much to watch what Trevor does, but uh, as his carer. And... <laughs> And he works as an intensive care nurse, which is uh, apparently what he actually told the police as they raided the uh, dungeon in, uh, in, in, in Hackney. And uh, he, he suffers the eternal torment of following West Ham United FC. So with that, I'm going to walk as quickly as possible and introduce uh, Ripperology's poster boy, ladies and gentlemen, Trevor Barnes. <laughs> So, afternoon everybody, and thanks to Frog for inviting me to speak to you all today. That's me, by the way. And that is the real talk uh, title of my talk. That's also my last little bit of PowerPoint wizardry you'll be glad to know. So, as you can now see, we're going to talk today about a terrible tale of Cumbridge Wells. Not my words, Michael, the words of Shaken Stevens. No, not my words. Uh, I've stolen that title from uh, an article, as you'll see shortly. Um, but I like alliteration. I spent the summer working at Kew Gardens where everything's alliteration. Climbers and creepers, talking trees. I even had to wear a t-shirt emblazoned with Q Crew with two Ks. It's hideous. Um, but alliteration sticks in the mind, like Casebook Classic Crime, of course, or Jews for Jesus, maybe. Perhaps not. Um, but first off, if I could just ask if anyone thinks... So Tumbridge Wells, 1888. If anyone thinks they've already got an idea about what case we're talking about, um, raise your hand if you do. 
raise two hands if you want me to shut up. <laughs> and if you want to go to the toilet, we're all adults, make your own decisions. <laughs> well, I'm glad not, not many of you have heard of that, because that means I can skip this next slide. <laughs> the reason some of you might have heard of this case is because of an article in Ripperologist a few years ago written by Nina and Hal Brown titled The Men Who Would Be Ripper. Uh, it was John here, um, our esteemed former speaker, who alerted me to this article. I was quite pleased with myself when I found out about this case because there's not much written about it. Um, so I'm glad not many of you have uh, heard of it, but it's the Browns article, which is the reason my third and final title slide. Anyway, for those of you who still don't think you've heard of this case, let's go through a few names and raise your hand at any point if any of this rings a bell. So we have the victim, Bensley Lawrence, one of the culprits, William Gower, and another, Charles de Bell. No one? Okay. Charles de Bell is interesting. Charles de Bell is the last person under the age of 18 executed in the UK. So here we have a crime that involves the last person under 18 executed in the UK. And given the notoriety of the last woman executed in the UK, I don't think many hands would have stayed down if I said who's heard of Ruth Ellis, the lack of profile, if you like, of this case already starts to seem interesting. We also have a case, and this was the focus of the Browns article, which includes a letter referencing the Whitechapel murders. Has anyone ever heard of... No, let's not do that. <laughs> we also have a case that involves what could be considered a mistake on the part of the police, and I don't know how much the field loves those sometimes. And finally, we have a case which one Antipodean product, uh, publication described as one of the most extraordinary stories ever unfolded in a court of justice. Reason enough for a quick look, don't you think? Indeed, one journalist went so far as to say the following. In all the history of crime, he wrote, his pen shaking with anger and perhaps not a little fear. Sorry, strange moment there. In all the history of crime, that's non-fiction, by the way. In all the history of crime, there surely exists no case which will quite match the record which comes from Tunbridge Wells. So why don't we know more about this case? Of course, given we are talking about 1888, there's one major reason for that, and that's a man who probably looked nothing like this, and there was no fucking fog. <laughs> Nonetheless, I come back to this. In any month of any year, quite a claim, but in November 1888, prop time. I first came across this case due to a passing reference in this book, um, which you can't see anything about because I spilled coffee on the dust cover. But it looks at the history of the Sweeney Todd myth and developments. It says, anyone read it? I know Jackie has. It was Jackie who described it to me as being very in-depth, and she wasn't joking. <laughs> Um, this is the passage that caught my attention, though, and for all the diversions that the author takes, I find it curious that he doesn't follow up on this. Um, but he tells us of a question asked in the Houses of Parliament on November the 13th, 1888, addressed to the Home Secretary, concerned with reports that two, quote, boys, end quote, awaiting their trial for murdering Maidstone, had been influenced by the fictional stories of Sweeney Todd, Barney the Vampire, and figures such as Dick Turpin and Charles Peace. I take it we all recognise this man. Yes, Henry Matthews, Queen's Counsel, MP for Birmingham East, later Viscount Lander, Her Majesty's Principal Secretary of State for the Home Department, or Home Secretary, from 1886 to 1892, and a Catholic Conservative who was a cautious proponent of Home Rule for Ireland. Also, as Wikipedia will tell you, 
an important figure in the establishment of Westminster Cathedral, which I think we'll all agree is hideous, but we'll let him off that Seriously though, his tenure was a difficult one. Obviously enough, those dates, 1886 to 1892, include the Whitechapel murders of 1888. He wasn't the Whitechapel murderer, by the way, before people say I've come out with a new theory. That period also includes the controversial execution of Israel Lipsky, and as we've now seen, the last execution in the UK of someone under the age of 18. It's quite a lot to pack into six years. Matthews doesn't seem to have been an easy man to get along with, and in fact it was MPs from his own party who uh, opposed his return to the Office of Home Secretary in 1895. It was his inability to get on with this man, Sir General Sir, later Sir Charles Warren, which probably contributed more than anything in the annals of true crime. A quick retread then, as this does have an impact on the situation Matthews found himself in by the time he was being asked about the dangers of fiction. Warren had been appointed as Commissioner of the Met in March 1886, in the final months of William Gladstone's Liberal government. In July of that year, however, the public elected a Conservative government, who proceeded to make brutal cuts and try and privatise the NHS. Sorry, that was this year, I get confused. <laughs> anyway, Warren quickly found his relationship with Matthews was going to be significantly more strained than with his previous Home Secretary, Hugh Childers, who'd been post when he was appointed. Famously, their differing approaches came to a head due to two incidents, one towards the end of 1887, so-called Bloody Sunday, uh, and then almost a year later, at the start of November 1888, an article written by Warren, which was published in Murray's magazine, uh, which displayed a confrontational attitude to the citizens of London, uh, and finally brought to head a major conflict between Commissioner and Home Secretary, namely the fact that Matthews felt Warren was subject to the same regulations as any officer, while Warren felt he didn't answer to anyone except perhaps the Queen. For Warren, the final straw was a memo sent in reply reminding him of his obligations, and as far as Warren saw it, disrespectfully sent not by Matthews, but from the pen of a clerk. The second time Warren offered his resignation, and on this occasion, uh, Matthews doesn't seem to have taken long to decide to accept. So it's safe to say by the middle of November, Henry Matthews was not having the best of times. In the previous days, as well as questions about the resignation of Warren, He'd answered on the clutch of the trial of Henry Glennie for the so-called Canterbury murder, as well as procedural issues arising from the arrest of Friedrich Schumacher uh, as part of the Whitechapel murders inquiry. This extract from the Star, famously by then proclaiming itself the paper with the largest circulation during part to its sensational coverage of events such as the Whitechapel murders in Bloody Sunday, gives some sense of the kind of pressure Matthews was under by the 13th of November 1888. Just a preview there. This is my special project with Mango Books. Um, in truth, the Honourable Mr Channing was behind the times. I can only assume he was absent or asleep the previous day when another MP had asked pretty much the same question uh, and had been assured that the Home Office were looking at the issue of so-called demoralising literature. To me, joke, alert, uh, to me demoralising literature refers more to stuff like this. And for any of you who think I could have put Bruce Robinson's book up there, shame on you. Whether raised by Channing or Jennings, though, the mention of so-called penny dreadfuls seems curious, given these questions were raised in Parliament just three or four days following the death of Mary Kelly, and so anyone could read the details of, of that and the other Whitechapel murders in any newspaper they chose to pick up. The focus on fiction as opposed to reality has been the potentially corrupting influence. Seems odd. What also seems odd is that both The String of Pearls, which was the first Sweeney Todd story, and Barney the Vampire had been published back in the 1840s, and stories about Dick Turpin, 
back in the previous century. It was hardly a contemporary issue. Then again, it's nothing new even for a modern audience. Uh, Sweeney Todd and Dick Turpin read Marilyn Manson being blamed for the Columbine massacre and Charles Blake III being blamed for the death of James Baldwin. If the accused had read Harley the Vampire, they wouldn't have learned much about good fiction writing. The preface to the book edition, published in 1847, begins with a glowing reference to the story's unprecedented success in serial form, and to this day, enthusiasts of vampirology, is that a thing? Uh, do acknowledge its place in the genre's development. No one praises its quality. Moving on to the text itself, the first thing you notice is it's huge. Even the abridged version, which is available online, features 96 chapters and 667,000 words. To put that into context, in most translations, War and Peace has around 560,000. It's well worth a quick diversion, though. Let's look at a couple of choice quotes. The solemn tones of an old cathedral clock have announced midnight. The air is thick and heavy. Strange, death-like stillness pervades all nature, like the ominous calm which precedes some more than usually terrific outbreak of the elements. They seem to have paused even in their ordinary fluctuations to gather a terrific strength for their great effort. A faint peal of thunder now comes from far off, like a signal gun for the battle of the winds to begin. It appeared to awake them from their lethargy. And one awful warring hurricane swept over a whole city, producing more devastation in the four or five minutes it lasted than would half a century of ordinary phenomena. This is the opening of the first chapter. There's over half a million more words like this to come. It goes on. It was in truth a very awful night. It is in truth a very awful book. There's one more passage that's worth mentioning. This is towards the end of the opening chapter, and by this point we've been introduced to a woman sleeping on her own in a stately bed of walnut wood, who is described as a creature formed in all fashions of loveliness, with a world of witchery in her slightly parted mouth, and who we are told is just budding into womanhood and in that transition state which presents to us all the charms of the girl. Nothing creepy about that. <laughs> anyway, she's woken by the storm and is then startled by the appearance of the eponymous vampire at her window. And for this next slide, I need a volunteer. I'm going to pick John if no one puts their hand up. <laughs> and I could really do with a woman. And you all want lunch, so hurry up. <laughs> You're the red bit, Joe. I'm the what bit? The red bit. What? A shriek bursts from the lips of the young girl, and then with eyes fixed upon that window, which in another moment is all darkness, and with such an expression of terror upon her face as it had never before known. Yet what? she trembled, what? and the perspiration of intense fear stood upon her brow. Joe, go! What? What was it? She gasped. Real or a delusion? Oh God, what was it? A figure, tall and gaunt, endeavouring from the outside to unclasp the window. I saw it. That flash of lightning revealed it to me. It stood the whole length of the window. She said to herself. <laughs> I can't Thank down you, now. <laughs> the authorship of this work of genius is disputed. Although two of the main characters, Thomas Peckett Press and James Malcolm Rymer, are also the two main suggestions for The String of Pearls. If anyone can make any sense of this diagram, you do it better than me. <coughs> A 
around 20 minutes to 10 on the evening of Friday the 20th of July 1888, a figure appeared at the back door of number 64 Tunnel Road, this door, the home of Benjamin and Maria Lawrence, along with the youngest three of their six children. Depending who you believe, Mr. Lawrence either opened the front door to the caller and then stepped outside to speak to him, or was in fact already standing outside the door when he arrived. Bensley wouldn't have recognised the caller, who told Bensley that the manager of Baltic Sawmills, Thomas Potter, wanted to see him. Bensley's job as an engine driver at the mills involved various supervisory roles, and it probably wasn't that unusual for him to be called out at night if there was a problem at the site. In fact, the house at number 64 was just round the corner from the mills, provided by his employers almost certainly for that purpose. But what should have seemed curious was that Potter didn't want to meet him at Mills or at his own house, but at a pub half a mile northeast, the Cypress. Bensley went back inside and spoke to his wife, who seems to have been less trusting. The Cypress, she would later testify, saying, I'm sure Mr. Potter would not want you there. Nevertheless, Bensley Lawrence dutifully left and accompanied the caller along the road. I'm dangling people. After a quarter of an hour, Maria was growing ever more suspicious. She sent her son, 15-year-old Bertie, to investigate. He found his father talking to the caller outside the sawmills, viz. on Good Station Road, and Bertie quickly returned, saying his father was now meeting Potter at the mills and needed some matches to light the lamps when he arrived. Bertie found a box of matches and returned to give them to his father. When he asked how long Bentley would be out, the reply was that he didn't know as Mr. Potter yet wasn't there. Maria Lawrence stayed up. Bertie went to have a bath. As is so often the case, Bensley ought to have listened to his wife. At about 25 to 1, one of the neighbours, Elizabeth Dennis, heard a bang. The noise had come from Mills Timber Yard, just a couple of streets away, and she walked, by her own estimation, three quarters of the way there to investigate, before she was frightened by the sound of a man groaning. At the same time, she bumped into another neighbour, Mr Willard, and told him she thought someone had fallen in the yard. Willard said the man was probably drunk, but they continued to the yard to find out. What they found was Bensley Lawrence with a single gunshot wound to his left temple. By this time others were arriving and Mrs. Dennis sent one of them to fetch a glass of water. Lawrence said he didn't want it, but he wanted to tell his wife what happened. Together, the crowd carried Bensley to his house. Maria spotted him, supported by two men and leaning against the garden wall. They helped him inside and laid him on a bench. Eventually he was taken to the local hospital where he was seen by Dr. Hillier. This is Hillier's description of his condition on arrival. I'm not sure about Dr. Hillier. Sitting up, resisting getting into bed, doesn't sound like a semi-comatose state to me, but there we go. Maria and Bensley had married in 1858. At the time of his murder, Bensley was 56 and Maria was 51. Both had been in Norfolk, where they also married and had their first three children. Sometime between 1864 and 71, they moved to Bury St Edmunds, where Clara, Bertie and Laura, the three youngest children, were born. Bensley, who had been a miller in Norfolk, started working for a Mr Powell, and around 1882, when Powell became the owner of the Baltic, the Lawrences followed. You can also see from here that uh, Bensley's middle name was correctly Silas, not Cyrus, as it was often reported at the time of his death. Bensley was from Shropham, near Norwich, while Maria grew up in the tiny village of Postwick. Today, if you Google Postwick, this is one of the first... Uh, <laughs> results you get. Look how pleased they are. <laughs> <laughs> Tell 
Tunbridge Wells didn't see significant development until the 17th century, north of the centre where our story takes place today for over a century after. Eventually it grew thanks largely to two men, Edward Hall, Henri Caron of Canterbury Cathedral, and a property developer named John Ward, who combined a number of plots into what became known as the Calvary Estate, down towards the bottom of our map here. Canon Hall was the progeny of a Quaker family who became, as we say, Honorary Canon of Canterbury Cathedral and a major opponent of the High Church. He also played one game of cricket for Cambridge University in 1831, scoring three in the first innings and a duck in the second, in a batting lineup headed by the Earl of Sandwich. In a match scheduled for two days, the university got so fed up at the prospect of defending a measly total of 26 runs that they conceded within a day. He will come up again later, although his cricket career is completely irrelevant and has shut the adjustment views near on myself. So this is the Tim Yard where Benjamin Lawrence was shot. The other smaller circle is 64 Tunnel Road. And this is the Cyprus uh, where it was claimed Thomas Potter wanted him to go. Uh, those two larger yellow circles are the main sawmills buildings. Um, and the other is a pub called the Railway, which Thomas Potter would say was actually the pub that all men would go to due to its proximity. Potter was actually living in York Road, down that way, at the time, about half a mile away. Um, so you can see why Maria was a bit suspicious about an errand to the Cyprus. When you look at the map, it becomes apparent why the caller tried that story. Because the Timby Art must have represented an ideal spot for an ambush, and it was only by leading him in the direction of the Cyprus that he could be manoeuvred there. Of course, it seems even Bensley started to wonder about the Cyprus, and the story then changed from meeting Potter at the mill building here, as we've seen on Good Station Road. Somehow, however, he was still being lured to the timber yard, and we know what happened next. Bensley Lawrence's funeral was held on the 25th of July. Thomas Potter represented the Baltic sawmills, and the mills were closed so all the men could attend. Several wreaths were placed on the coffin, including two from the firm, as the local newspaper reported. The equivalent of Charles Warren in Kent at the time was Chief Constable John Henry Hay Ruxton, who had been in charge since the force was created in 1857 and was, like Warren, an ex-army man. Initially, the police had very little to go on. Thomas Potter called a meeting of the sawmills employees who were asked to account for their movements on the 20th of July. No useful leaks transpired. The inquest established there had been some workers recently dismissed who may have held a grudge, uh, but that angle fizzled out. One worker by the name of Cramp was said to have been recently angered by his treatment and Maria did say his voice was similar to that at the door, but she also admitted that she knew of no unpleasantness between Cramp and her husband. The police seemed to have satisfied themselves with his innocence shortly after. Bertie Lawrence's description of the figure seen with his father outside the mills was of little use given the time of night and the poor lighting. The same was true of three other witnesses, including the aforementioned Mr Willard, who reported seeing Lawrence and one other standing outside the mills, but were all unable to give a clear description. The Baltic Sawmills offered a £100 reward, not an insignificant amount at the time, but it did little to advance the investigation. The only real clue came from two young men named Arthur Shrewbridge and Frank Hensley. They had seen two people standing near the timber yard and were confident neither of them were Bentley Lawrence. A taller moustache figure had remained in the yard while his companion walked off towards the Lawrence's house. You stop here, the figure on the move was said to say. Now's your time. Still, there wasn't much to work with. That was until a letter was handed to the messenger boy of the Tunbridge Wells advertiser two months later on the 27th of September. 
let's have a read. Two months having now passed, I venture to ask you to be kind enough to allow me a small space in your valuable paper. Dot, dot, dot. Lawrence was very talkative, little thinking of the death he had so shortly got to die. The last words he spoke to me was when he caught sight of the pistol sticking out of my pocket. He said, what do you carry them there sort of things around with you for? My answer was to shoot down dogs and curs like you. Bang! And once more Tunbridge Wells was startled by another mystery, which is never likely to be found out. Signed, of course, another Whitechapel murderer. Because why not, eh? Although quite what the writer felt the shooting of Lawrence had in common with the throat cuttings and eviscerations of a fairly specific area, including the name, really, is anyone's guess. If the author had waited a bit longer, given that famous date, he may have signed it Jack the Ripper, of course. So there's a piece of trivia for any of you who haven't heard of this case. The next time someone tells you there was only one letter referencing the Whitechapel murders delivered on the 27th of September, 1888. The police dismissed the letter as a hoax, but in truth, it was the first sign that the murder was starting to play on the mind of at least one of the culprits. And while it was couched in the self-congratulatory tones of, yes, the pen dreadful, this anonymous letter probably represented the tentative start of the journey towards confession. Another two weeks passed, and the death of Florence faded from the news, while the dear boss letter and the deaths of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes dominated the public consciousness. On the 12th of October, however, an 18-year-old lad turned up at the house of the Salvation Army Captain William Cotterell in Tunbridge Wells. It would transpire that the murderers of Ben Lawrence had been hiding in plain sight the whole time. The visitor was William Gower, the middle child of three and only son of William Gower Senior, Head Carter at the Baltic Sawmills. Born in the town, he was living in Vernon Road at the time, interestingly, just around the corner from Cyprus. The scene had been set the previous day, when Gower, along with a friend, Charles Bell, had attended a meeting at the Salvation Army barracks. The barracks aren't there any longer, and I can't find any photos of them, so here's a photo of a barrack. <laughs> Captain Cotterill takes up the story from his subsequent trial testimony. The two prisoners were in the habit of attending the Salvation Army meetings. On Thursday, October the 11th, we had a meeting. At the conclusion of the address, I invited any present who were willing to give themselves up to God. None in the meeting accepted the invitation except the two prisoners. Gower seemed to have difficulty. He had been at the table for an hour and did not seem to be thoroughly saved. As to the bell, he seemed more penitent. At the finish, they both prayed aloud. You can see what's coming. Gower and Debell had met as young children at Sunday school and, by all accounts, inseparable. For his part, Debell was a year younger at 17. The second eldest of four boys, born to Elizabeth and Arthur de Bell. He was born in Cranbrook, a village 15 miles east of Tunbridge Wells, and on the 1871 census, his family had three servants living with them. These were not your typical juvenile delinquents. Gower told Cottrell that he and de Bell were responsible for Lawrence's murder, but that wasn't the end of it. Once again, in somewhat exaggerated language, Gower stated that there has been nothing bad done in Tunbridge Wells that me and my mate have been at the bottom of. We have been two bad characters. And then, of course, we were at the bottom of the murder of July 20th. Cotterill asked Gower whether he was sorry. Typically, Gower answered in terms of collective responsibility. Well, sometimes, but sometimes we feel that if we were to rise again, we would do it again. Quite chilling, really. Leaving Cotterill, Gower went to work, but at some point he realised he'd better contact his partner in crime. He, did a, he delivered a letter to DeBell's brother, Caleb. However, Caleb read the letter and handed it to the police. 
first George Bell knew about the letter, therefore, was probably when it was read out in court. In the letter, Gower comes across as still being optimistic that the captain may be able to somehow make matters right. He was wrong. As we can see from his trial testimony, Cottrell, after speaking to his wife and his superiors at the Salvation Army, informed the police of Gower's confession on that same day. Gower must have known that was likely. At around 4pm, Cottrell accompanied Superintendent Embry of Tunbridge Wells Police to arrest Gower at the Baltic Sawmills. Well, Captain, I thought you may have waited until tonight, Gower stated matter-of-factly, but he doesn't seem to have held any ill will against his confessor. On the way to the police station, Gower asked Cottrell's advice. Out with it, was the reply. It will be the better for you. At the police station, Gower was searched and a key found. Superintendent Embry asked him what it was for, and Gower told him it opened an outhouse where he kept rabbits. Embry wondered whether he would find the pistol there. Yes, Gower replied, on the top row of the second touch. And so it was, along with spare ammunition. It had been reloaded. Gower would later tell the police that he and Bell bought the gun together and shared it, although Bell had still not paid for his half. It was okay, Gower said. He knew his mate would pay when he could. When asked the purpose of buying it, Gower was adamant that they hadn't done so with a plan to murder. In his own words, Oh no, other fellows have them, and we thought we would like one. DeBell was arrested on the same day at home. Initially he denied any knowledge, but quickly asked whether his mate Gower was at the station, and then confessed himself, also outing himself as the writer of the 27th of September letter by repeating his concern with the accuracy of Mrs Lawrence's description of the event. It seems a curious detail to be concerned about when your next statement ends with the words, you've got the murderer. The trial didn't last long. Both Gower and DeBell pleaded not guilty, which seems optimistic in the circumstances. The New Zealand Herald would later comment on their respectable appearance as if surprised, although it also seemed to consider the two lads uh, as, uh, must be a bit of script here, um, as cold and even emotionless. Uh, interestingly, they got their ages wrong uh, in another report. Uh, details also came to light about the pair's alleged other crimes. These included as many as 10 arson attacks, not counting several fires set on Tunbridge Wells Common, and a robbery in February 1888 in the same road as the Lawrence's house, at which seen a sword stick had been left, an item to Bell now identified as his own. It was hardly the crime of the century, to be fair. They got away with a few birds. One incident of note, however, apparently happened on the day on which Gower and Bell would later attempt to have their souls saved at the Salvation Army meeting. The day before, Gower finally confessed and the friends were arrested. It's interesting to us in that it shows, again, an odd misunderstanding about the Whitechapel murders on the part of the pair. When DeBell was talking to a fellow workman about the Whitechapel murders, he said, I too have shot a man. Okay. His colleague passed it off as a joke. He'd soon realise his mistake. I can't find out where DeBell was working at the time, by the way, but it definitely wasn't Baltic Solvent. In their police statements, once again, Gower and DeBell exhibited a strange fascination with tiny details. DeBell again reiterated that he hadn't asked Lawrence to step outside the house. Uh, you may be able to see these very well, but that's Gower's at the top and DeBell's at the bottom. Gower also disputed Captain Cottrell's assertion that Gower had told him he and DeBell had either drawn lots or tossed a coin to decide who would do the shooting. Gower was also asked why DeBell would agree to shoot a man he didn't know. Because he's my pal, came the answer, and he's true as steel. The defence, such as it was, 
consisted largely of Gower's mother and sister, who both claimed he'd been at home by shortly after the time of Bell's visit to the Lawrence's house, and well before the time of the murder. It wasn't the best defence in the world. It does seem peculiar, though, to wonder exactly what Gower's involvement really was, if it was indeed to Bell who both tricked Bentley into the timber yard and fired the fatal shot. The prisoners were recommended for mercy on account of their age, but after just 20 minutes' deliberation, the jury returned to give a verdict of guilty, and the judge announced that both Gower and Bell were to be hanged by the neck until dead. The date was set for January the 2nd, 1889. Quite soon after the verdict, a petition was raised to save Gowan de Bell from the gallows. Welcome back, Henry Matthews. Canon Hall was a major supporter of the attempt, again based on their ages, but also on a growing narrative of corruption through popular culture. William Gower stayed in touch with Captain Cottrell, and to backtrack a little, one letter from while he was awaiting trial is quite endearing, really. It also suggests that the murderer's new religious feelings were genuine. Talking of their transfer to prison, Gower says he's not unhappy, and that he and the bell had kept their spirits up by whistling religious songs before being stopped. Never mind, we can praise him all the same. He continues cheerfully, before asking the captain if he would visit him. Signed, not another Whitechapel murderer this time, but the happy jailbird, William Gower. Back to the petition, which was delivered on Saturday the 29th of December 1888, having garnered 2,016 signatures. A further thousand or so had also apparently been collected by Captain Cockrell. Two days later, all through Monday, as the local newspaper reported, the utmost suspense was entertained, as would soon be the case with Gowland Bell, I suppose. Uh, however, on Tuesday morning, Canon Hall received a reply dated 31st of December. Sir, I am directed by the Secretary of State to inform you that he has not been able to discover any sufficient grounds to interfere with the due course of the law. The New Zealand Herald tells us of the final moments of Betsy Lawrence's murderers. Both slept well, apparently, woke at 6am and ate breakfast. At 8am they were led to the gallows and seemed to have died instantly, although a slight quivering of the rope to which the bell was attached was noticed. Other reports also state that the pair asked to have their arms and legs bound in preparation for death in the same cell, uh, but were told this was not allowed. A compromise was reached and Gower was first pinioned in his cell before being led into the corridor where the bell was secured standing next to him. Neither spoke to the other. Their executioner, James Berry, was certainly organised and enjoyed a breakfast including fried soles delivered to the prison between the execution at 8 and cutting down the bodies at 9am. Because why wouldn't you? Another appeal followed, and again both Captain Cottrell and Cannon Hall were heavily involved. The local newspaper, The Courier, began soliciting donations to buy the Lawrence family a new home, presumably signalling that the house near the Baltic sawmills had been taken back by the company in order to house Bentley's replacement. On the 11th of October 1889, Maria Lawrence wrote to the courier to express her gratitude for the appeal and stated she had now taken possession of a combined house and shop at number 14 Quarry Road. The date she chose to write can't be coincidental. It's exactly a year since Gower and Bell had tried, first uh, gone to the table at the Salvation Army meeting. Quarry Road was just a short distance from Maria's previous home. Still, it was a street of memories and not all of them good. The sawmills were the yellow circle on the left, and as we can see, the timber yard on the right, at one end of the road, uh, and at the other end of the road, where you can see Grosvenor Bridge, uh, those are the arches at the top there, which would have been used as the mortuary at the time. So, looking one way out of their front gardens, you can see where the 
husband was shot without the other way she could see where his dead body had been taken. Number 14 was located where the red circle is, and it's still there today. Or at least it was a month ago, someone heard that in A short epilogue, then. Perhaps surprisingly, William Gower continued working at the Baltic sawmills, even after his son had shot one of his colleagues. Although one newspaper report did reveal that he had met with an accident at work, which left him with a fractured skull while his son was awaiting trial. So perhaps uh, he wasn't warmly received by all his colleagues. The family were also still in Vernon Road on the 1891 census. Mary Ann died sometime between that census and the 1911 edition, whence William, Annie and Emily can all be found living in Bromley. William Gower's cousin, Joshua Gower, begat a family of more positive historical note. His son, Robert Gower, eight years old at the time of William Gower's execution, became an alderman of Tunbridge Wells in 1909 and went on to be elected as mayor in 1918, by which time he'd already been knighted for his work in supporting local businesses through the First World War. He served as an MP from 1924 to 1945, firstly for Gillingham and later Hackney. He died in 1953 and would be commemorated by a memorial in that place again, Quarry Road. Canon Hoare, who died in 1894, would also be similarly commemorated in St John's Road, once home to uh, Charles de Bell, the young man whose life he failed to save. Robert Gower's daughter Pauline Gower became a pioneering female aviator and come the Second World War head of the female branch of the Air Transport Auxiliary. She's today best remembered as one of the inspirations for the character of Warrells by Biggles author W.E. Johns, along with her former ATA First Officer, A.M. Johnson. The DeBell family remained in St John's Street for many years. Arthur DeBell, who started out as a farmer in Cranbrook, worked his way through a number of occupations. He was an insurance salesman at the time of the murder, before dying late in 1901, after appearing on the census of that year as a 62-year-old florist and gardener. His wife, Elizabeth, survived him by 26 years, dying in 1927, Cherry Tree Farm, where Charles DeBell had been born in Cranbrook, is still exists today, and is now the home of Cherry Tree Meats, if anyone's in the market for some sausages with a true crime connection. <laughs> Caleb Clifford DeBell, who had passed on the letter from William Gower intended for his brother to the police in 1888, fought in the Boer War in 1901, and then stayed in South Africa, ending up as a manager for a Gold Coast mining company. In 1915, he fought with the South African Army during the German Southwest Campaign in today's Namibia, and following the dissolution of those units, he returned to Britain and travelled to France with the British Expeditionary Force. Sensibly, given his skills, he was assigned to a tunnelling company and he was quickly promoted to second lieutenant. In April 1917, he was sent home on sick leave and diagnosed with pulmonary tuberculosis. He resigned his commission in March 1918, accepting that his fighting days were over. He was granted permission to return to South Africa in August, but died before he could arrive on the 17th of November. He doesn't appear to have any family in South Africa, as he gave his mother, still in Tunbridge Wells, as his next of kin, and his brother Frederick is the person to whom his body and possessions should be released. Frederick was living in Hastings, and Caleb was buried in Hastings Cemetery, where he's commemorated on the Commonwealth War Graves Memorial Wall. Maria Lawrence died of bronchitis on the 6th of January 1932, 44 years since she last saw her husband unwounded, as he left for a meeting with Mr Potter that never existed. She was 95 years old and had spent most of the previous four and a bit decades living in Quarry Road. Her son Bertie was present at her death. 
44 years since he himself had delivered a pack of matches to his father outside the Baltic sawmills. Maria set about supporting her family by running a sweet shop, funded in large part by Captain Cottrell's donation of the £100 reward money. The property she'd been provided with as a result of the Careers Appeal and number 14 Quarry Road had previously been listed in the 1889 trade directory, the details of which would have been collected the previous year, as being owned by Mrs Emma Ward, shopkeeper, and as we've seen from Maria's letter to the courier, she took possession of what was both house and shop towards the end of 1889. By the time of the 1998-99 trade directory, Maria Lawrence was listed as a confectioner working out at number 27 Quarry Road. Interestingly, one of Charles, one of uh, Devell's father's many occupations was a confectioner himself, according to an 1886 trade directory. Although we can't be certain that would have brought him into direct uh, competition with the widow of his son's victim by the time she herself set up shop. Maria never remarried, and Bertie died in 1958, aged 85. James Berry gave up his post as executioner shortly following the botched execution of John Conway in 1891. In truth, the Home Office had already decided not to use him for any further executions before his resignation arrived. Already known as a drinker by the end of his career, not averse to telling stories of executions in local pubs, though he eventually became a devout Christian and travelled the country arguing against the death penalty, although mainly because of concerns about the psychological burden on the executioner and any concerns about the fate of the condemned. <coughs> Berry died in 1931. In My Experiences as an Executioner, he wrote of the final moments of Devon Gower. Finally, at the bitter end, the coldness of their natures, so negatively remarked upon during their trial, seems to have morphed into something almost worthy of respect. One naturally expects a hard indifference from an old criminal, but it saddens me to see it in the young. And yet two of the youngest men, or rather boys, that I have executed were callous to the last degree. They were Charles de Bell, aged 17, and William Gower, 18. They seem to have conducted themselves with a sort of bravado which, if genuine, would have done credit to a patriot or martyr sacrificing for country or for faith, or to one of their backwards heroes. After their sentence, they paid careful attention to the chaplain's words, but they showed no sign of emotion, and it was said that it was doubtful whether at any time they fully realised the serious nature of their position. They walked to the scaffold in defiant manner, more upright than was their wont, and neither of them looked or spoke to the other. There was no farewell, no word of repentance or regret, Really, a brief supplication to God to receive him. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is that. Thank you, Trevor. I need this microphone. Put it on. Thank you very much, Trevor. So much of your this is going to run for hours. Uh, you know that talk actually lasted seven and a half minutes. <laughs> So, questions for Trevor on this fascinating case. Oh, I've got them, them now. Feed what you're doing to me. Feed what you're doing to me. <laughs> I'm going to go out this way. You can't see me. You're fascinated by what uh, Trevor said about uh, blaming murder on popular culture. Um, I can think of two cases immediately in which that happened. Um, one was the very famous case of Craig and Bentley, in which John Paris, Craig, uh, Craig's barrister, uh, blamed in court 
uh, Craig's behaviour on uh, violent American comics and films, and he like Parrish later admitted that he had no actual defence, so he simply made it up. Um, and another case, this is 1987, Michael Ryan and the Hunter Massacre. Um, the press were all over it uh, immediately afterwards and claimed that um, Ryan was imitating the first Rambo film, First Blood, um, uh, which had recently been shown, according to them, on BBC. Well, yes, well, it depends what you call re re uh, recently. It actually had been shown 11 months earlier. Um, Ryan did not own the video, and the version that appeared was actually so heavily censored as far as the violence went by the BBC that they had a number of letters of complaint about that. I think that's the same with, with Jamie Balder, isn't it? I'm right in saying that they've never actually been able to prove they ever watched Charles Play 3. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is a rubbish film, but, you know. Afternoon, Sue. That was absolutely excellent. Thank you very much. Um, why do you think the New Zealand Herald reported the case so much? I think were it not for the Ripper, I think we'd have had it more reported over here. Um, but that was, it was when I started searching for it in the newspapers, it was the New Zealand Herald that I first came across. And that's the immediate thing, you think, well, why? Um, I mean, I think a lot of what the papers were saying were the sensational details were the stuff that came out in the trial, the fact they were so young, the fact there was this almost sort of cowboys and Indians sense to, oh, other boys had a gun, so we had one, and oh, he's my mate, he'll do it for me. And, and it's, it's sort of not even really understanding the consequences, I don't think. I think it's one of those rare cases where you come out feeling sorry for everyone, for me at least. Um, and I think that's what the sensation was. So when the murder happened at the end of July, it was just man found shot, no one knows who did it, which isn't very sensational. By the time those details started coming out in October, obviously we'd had most of the, the Ripper crimes, so that was just monopolising the press over here. I suppose in, over in New Zealand and in other countries where they have more distance on the Ripper crimes, they were able to stand back and say, this crime's interesting, so is this one. Um, but as we all know, you know, the papers were almost sort of back to front ripper at, at that point. There was no, no space for, for it, really. Um, I might have uh, missed it, but although the, um, one of them's father worked at the yard, yeah. was there no motive whatsoever? Uh, you didn't miss it, Ed. I did. <laughs> If we go back to the beginning, no, um, yeah, you're quite right. No, the motive was, um, Benzie Lawrence did, although he was an engine driver, some reports called him the foreman, but his job was actually engine driver. Um, but that did, that seems to have been in a sort of middle management, skilled um, sort of band. And he had certain supervisory capabilities, such as going to the sawmills in the middle of the night, if Potter wanted to see him or if there's anything going on. And one of his jobs was to find people who were late. And in the nine months or so that Gower had been working there, he'd find him, I think I worked out that it works out as one it's every three days. Um, and it was a penny a time, and they weren't on very much money. So Gower told DeBell that he was a man who was against the workers, and it was that sort of sense. 
Um, I get the feeling with Gower that because his father was also in that sort of middle management um, level at the mills, that he'd probably been made to start working. It was probably, if you're not going to get a job, I'll get you a job at the mills, but you'll damn well start at the bottom and work your way up. And I get the feeling that Gower probably thought, oh, I don't really have to put the work in because my dad works here. Um, and Lawrence, who seems to have been quite a conscientious man, obviously wasn't falling for that. So it was it was bitterness for that, really. But it's not much to go and shoot someone in the head, is it? Ed Stone, the revenge, this time it's personal. <laughs> the, um, I know they, they seem to be, uh, or confess to doing a lot of hay burning and stuff like that. Yeah. They? And um, I'm wondering if they, if there was, whether it's some, they thought there was some sort of social heroes or something. I can't work out what they were, and then they were confessing to the Salvation Army, I can't work out what they were doing. Normally. Um, they seem to have started off with the arsons and then, then there was this robbery where they got away with a few pet birds. They did also say that there was someone else who, they didn't say quite what his offence was, but someone else who had slighted one of them who they'd also planned to murder. Um, and as I say, the, um, the pistol was fully loaded when they found it so that there wasn't the one bullet that was in Lawrence's head missing. So they reloaded it perhaps because they were planning on going out again. Um, so allegedly there was another murder in the offing. Um, so they seem to progress from the arsons towards that. I don't think there was probably any genuine social sort of, you know, let's smash the property um, sense to them. They might have felt that was what they were doing, perhaps. Um, the Dick Turpin reference is interesting in that context, isn't it? Because the way Dick Turpin gets presented in a lot of those kind of stories, wrongly, is that, you know, you're almost a Robin Hood character, isn't he? So I think they may have felt they were sort of victimless crimes, at least, you know, they were hitting out against society. Um, but they weren't exactly impoverished. <laughs> you know, one of them grew up with three servants, and the other one, his father was the same sort of middle management at the mills. So they, they weren't exactly fighting back against the society that was holding them down, although they may have felt that. And they were just silly teenagers, to be honest with you. Were they typical boys of that time? They seem rather simplistic. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And the, the sort of fascination with small details seems to fit with that interpretation to me as well. There's a, I say the whole way through it, there's, there's a, it, they are very simplistic. It's, you know, but we didn't buy the gun to, murder, to shoot anyone, we just bought it to have one. Yeah, but you did shoot someone. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the idea of, oh, the, the, the captain wants to see us at half past six, let's go and see. What did they think was going to happen? And then this odd obsession with saying, um, you know, no, Lawrence didn't leave the back, didn't, I didn't ask him to come out the back door. He was already outside the back door when I got there. They seem to have been very keen to get all the details right. But when you actually shot him in the head, whether you asked him to get out the door or not, it's really relevant, is it? Um, yeah, but they were, they were both working. They, they were clearly they relatively intelligent. any sense of preservation. No, no, absolutely not. They're just lobby going around. Mm. I think, like, and even Barry says, doesn't he, that even at the end he felt they didn't under fully comprehend the seriousness of their situation. I don't think they realised, 
in the way kids don't sometimes, you know, younger kids typically made it in 17, 18, but I don't think they really realised there were consequences to things. Maybe that's what this case shows, is that if you allow people who don't really understand the consequences of things to have guns, things don't always end well. Well, in that case, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together again for tiny little Trevor Bond.